Twas the week after Christmas, and wherever I went, nothing would fit me, not even a tent. The chocolates I'd nibble, the sherry I'd taste, all those Christmas goodies had gone to my waist. When I got on the scales, the dial would not stop. Would it register less if I did a small hop? I remember the marvellous meals that I've eaten, the gravies, the sauces, and the cream stiffly beaten. The wine and the port, the bread and the cheese, and the way I'd say never, no thank you, yes please. So away with the last of the quality street, get rid of the fruitcake, not one treat I'll keep. The last of the food I like must be banished, till all the additional ounces have vanished. I won't have ice cream, not even a lick, all I want to chew on is a celery stick. I won't have Christmas cake or a mince pie, I'll munch on a carrot and quietly cry. I'm hungry, I'm sober, oh what a bore, but isn't that what the month of January is for? Unable to party, life no longer a riot, happy new year to all and to all a good diet. You're listening to the Plain Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Stevings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Hello and welcome to episode 197 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Matt Smith and not joining me in the studio this week is Carlos or Nev. I'm on my own this week, I'm in the barn studio recording this for you and the only person I have for company is my dog Alfie because everybody else is busy enjoying the Christmas break and uh, I'm just keeping an eye on things at my new work. It's very quiet here today so it's given me the perfect opportunity to put together a very special New Year show. Don't panic though guys because you will be hearing from both Nev and Carlos very shortly. So coming up later in this shorter than usual programme, it's another chance to hear a great interview from Nev's passenger experience with Richard Westcott from the BBC. There's a great interview from the Seeding Air Show with one of the display pilots, a fascinating chap by the name of Bob Grinstead. And I've even managed to put together a few outtakes from the Christmas show that we released last week, so you're in for a bit of a treat with that. First up, though, we are off to Dubai. Regular listeners of the show will know that Carlos was in Dubai in November and he got a great opportunity to interview Cindy and Gil from the Orbist Eye Hospital. So you join me then in a very privileged place indeed. I'm on the flight deck of uh, Orbis's MD-11 and uh, just witnessing through the uh, flight deck windows the A380 by, uh, fly pass with the 777 Emirates and uh, <laughs> I've, got a gr- I've got a good view here that's for sure that's for sure <laughs> so we're on one I'm on the uh, on the flight deck of uh, of the said the MD 10 and it's the Orbis uh, flying eye hospital and uh, I've been uh, very lucky indeed to uh, sit left seat as well which is uh, always good in uh, in my my eyes anyway so uh, tell us a bit uh, tell us your name first sure Cindy Berwin so, Cindy, what, uh, what's your uh, position here then uh, with Orbis? Well, I'm one of the volunteer pilots. We have 18 of us, and we all take turns flying the airplane as it uh, goes to different programs throughout the world. Great. So, the, uh, the well, obviously the MD-10 we're on now, 
it's a tri-jet you know it's uh, a lot there's not so many tri-jets in the world now flying what what's she like to fly she's a really really nice flying airplane very stable you can trim it right up uh, got lots of power and uh, can carry a lot of weight it's really a nice flying airplane a pleasure a pleasure and I, I imagine the job you have as well takes you to quite some uh, interesting destinations Is, are there any uh, airports that you love to fly into I never can pick a favorite. People always ask me that, and I never can pick a favorite. I, I love seeing the world. I love meeting new people, and it's really nice to, to get down there. But the advantage of what we get to do is taking the hospital into programs and places where they really need the help. That's a privilege. So the job you've got here, then, you've obviously got the, the best job in, on, the, on the aircraft, I think, really. Well, this isn't really a job. This is our voluntary thing. You know, we do this as volunteers. It's a part-time thing, and it's uh, how we spend our vacations. And as we, we rotate around the different pilots that fly the airplane, uh, it's flying with your friends. It's a lot of fun. And so, yeah, it's it, you couldn't ask for a better hobby. Great. So a bit about, uh, about, about your career, then your uh, flying career, just watching other aircraft. Oh, there's some aircraft in the pattern here. So a bit about your, uh, your flying career, then, Cynthia. Where... Uh, where did it all start for you? Uh, well, it started as a, as a child, <laughs> I guess as a teenager, where I used to go out to the airport a lot, and I learned to fly in gliders and single engine airplanes, worked my way up, and I was flying newspapers in Beach 18s at 2 o'clock in the morning, inner island in Hawaii, and then, uh, and then from there I ended up uh, going into the Air Force and flew in the Air Force. Then I flew for, now I fly for FedEx. That's my paying job. And uh, so that's that's kind of my my background. Great. So did you get a chance to fly any other aircraft in for uh, FedEx? Well, right now I'm flying the MD-11 and MD-10 for FedEx, but I have flown the other airplanes. Yes. Awesome. So um, where where about? Obviously, you said about some of the destinations you've flown in. You can't pick a favorite. Are there any any sort of airports that are, are quite tricky to to land in with an aircraft of this size? Yes. <laughs> I flew into Kathmandu, and that one was pretty tricky on this particular airport. That one was especially tricky. Let me think of some of the other ones that are tricky. Hilo in Hawaii. It doesn't have any instrument approach on runway 8. That one can be a little bit tricky. They get weather that comes through there. Um, I don't know. Gil, what do you think? What's some tricky airports? I think you mentioned all yeah, introduce yourself. Uh, Gil Von Driska. I'm also a volunteer pilot for Orbis and a FedEx uh, pilot also. So I agree with everything Cindy said, and that's not just because she's my boss at FedEx, but it's because she's actually that well-regarded and that well-respected. But yes, uh, there's plenty of, every place, depending on the weather, all pilots know the weather, um, the, whatever conditions are going on, could be challenging at any time. So uh, that's kind of what we prepare for and hope for, and hope we're prepared for that, and hope we have somebody good at our, either on our left side or our right side. So a bit about your, uh, your, 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 your sort of aviation uh, history then. Uh, my aviation history is Air Force. I was an Air Force pilot T-38 instructor and then flew C-5s and then I took a year off from FedEx. They were nice enough to let me do that and I flew, uh, learned how to fly combat rescue helicopters, flew HH-60Gs. Um, and uh, that's pretty much my career and I just love flying little airplanes. So I'm able to rent uh, Super Decathlon and R-44 and fly gliders. I just, anything aviation related and that's, What's really nice about FedEx is you can really just focus on being a better pilot and work, work that, and they give you plenty of opportunities to do that. And to be able to be part of Orbis, such a great organization, it's a real honor. 
So when you guys are up here on the flight deck, and is there is there normally just two of you up here, or do you have a third? Because uh, it used to be obviously flight engineer many years ago would sit there. Is it just the two of you? A lot of times it's just the two of us, but we do take a third pilot if it's a longer flight. So that's that's definitely. I don't want to miss what. A, what's that noise? What's that noise? <laughs> Something else in the uh, flight. The flying display actually started at two p.m. So it started dead on time here at uh, Dubai. But I'm going to ask you guys a question, put you on the spot. It's a question that we always ask the pilots on the show when we interview the pilots at the various air shows. And uh, it's a kind of... Oh, God, look at that. Oh. Display aircraft going up. We're going to catch up with the display quite soon, hopefully. That's good. No, that's fine. It's 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 aviation related, so that's all good. That's all good. Was that a three eighty just doing a flight? There we go. Some great stuff here on the flight line. So, quick question then. So, given a chance to fly any aircraft in the world, albeit retired or in current flying condition, civilian or military, what would it be? Okay, so this is a really hard question, and it's something Gil and I both have in common. We like to fly a lot of things. I've flown hot air balloons, I've flown gliders, helicopters, seaplanes, uh, a lot of different airplanes. I couldn't choose one. I couldn't, I would, I've thought often, I need to buy an airplane, and then should it be a Piper Cub? Because <laughs> that would be really fun. Or, you know, do I want to have a, an RV-8 or, or something to go cross-country in? I can't pick. I can't pick. Yep. A-10, hands down. Really? Yeah. I've worked a lot with the A-10s in the rescue business, and they're just, that's just an awesome machine. Yeah, we had A-10s based uh, on the East Coast where I live in the UK, so I remember seeing the A-10s flying quite a lot. Yeah, a noisy one. <laughs> that's it. Right, I'm going to thank you two very much indeed for letting me on the flight deck here on the MD-10. It's been uh, absolutely fantastic, and uh, thanks for being on the show. And uh, just for, uh, for the listeners, where can they find out more about you guys? YouTube. On YouTube, just Orbis and... Uh, yeah, yeah. just do a Google search for Orbis and there's some really good videos on YouTube. I'll bet favorite one, I'll chime in. Yeah, Orbis, uh, Daniel Craig, just Google that. Daniel Craig Orbis. Uh, yes, that's my favorite. Mongolia, yeah, he's and he did a really nice job. It's, it's done by Omega. That's my advice. It's a great organization and, like I said, honored to be a part of it. Thanks, guys, for your time and uh, all the best uh, for the future and hope you enjoy the show. This year we were very lucky to welcome a new member to our hosting team in the form of the legendary Neville Bounds. And with him he brought a brilliant new segment that is very affectionately known as Nev's Passenger Experience. During this year just gone he's been interviewing some great people and of course let's not forget last week's very special Christmas Nev's Passenger Experience as he interviewed Mel C from the Spice Girls. He's a bit of a dark horse that Nev isn't he eh? Earlier in the year, though, Nev got the opportunity to pop to Broadcasting House and interview someone from the BBC. Richard Westcott works for BBC News for both the radio and television, and it was fascinating to hear that he shares some of our concerns over the media and its accuracy. (laughs) 
Hello, it's Nev here again, and today I'm at uh, the BBC at New Broadcasting House in a very posh studio. I have with me BBC's transport correspondent, Richard Westcott. Hello, Richard. Hello, yeah. I know it looks posh, but <laughs> it doesn't feel like that when it doesn't work sometimes. <laughs> and you were just telling me early on, this is the studio you come into uh, when there's a story breaking and you have to do something fairly quickly. Yeah, I mean, for plane crashes, for example, you know, I have to go on the TV very quickly and on the radio... And this would be, because it's very close to my desk, one of the studios I'd run into and then do, say, Radio 4, Radio 5, perhaps Radio 2 if they're on air and they want something like that, some of the um, local radio if they want it, and then run downstairs and do the telly as well. So, yes, I could do everything from here. Kind yeah, of interesting. Thing. Tell me about your career. How did you get into being a journalist specifically for, for transport? Well, I was a generic journalist probably for about 15 years, something like that. I was a breakfast telly reporter, I was at Radio 1, I was on local uh, radio, did a bit of presenting on local radio, that kind of thing. And what the way the BBC works, basically, when the jobs come up, you go for them and you gen up as quickly as you can to become an expert in that area. So the people who become the health correspondents aren't necessarily experts in health, economics, the same thing, you know, politics, the same thing. But it does help to have a real interest. So when I went for this job, I think there were about 14 other people going for it. It was at one of those musical chairs sort of periods in the BBC's life. Where a few people were being made redundant and so it was very competitive to get this job. And luckily, I happen to love aeroplanes and cars and motorbikes and all that kind of stuff. So that did give me a head start. But you, I wasn't an expert as such. Do you prefer being a specialist rather than a, a generalist, if you don't mind me asking that question? Yeah, no, I, I like it more. Um, you can just get into the depth of the story a little bit more. And with transport, basically, there are regional transport correspondents and really good ones as well for the BBC. But I'm the only national one. So frankly, when a big story happens, I get to do it. And when you're in another field, you're often bumped by someone who's frankly better than you, you know, higher up the chain than you sort of thing. So at transport, I, I kind of get to do the big stories. Now, we were talking earlier on, obviously, this is an aviation podcast, so we're going to be talking about aviation uh, today. In terms of the um, equipment that you have available to you now, it's um, fantastic, you know, from radio scanners to um, ADSB tracking, this kind of thing. Does that make your job easier in a, in a sense? Uh, it uh, makes it harder in some ways in that everybody can see when an aircraft is squawking, they're in trouble. Uh, and so I get these constant emails saying, there's someone circling over Manchester and they're you know losing fuel and keep an eye on it kind of thing. I think you, we all know how often that happens around the world. So it can be a little bit sort of people jump the gun a little bit thinking there is an emergency when there isn't. Where it is really useful is people recording images of things that have happened. You get a much clearer idea of things that have happened much sooner because people on board the aircraft or people watching are filming it and they make their way into the public domain pretty quickly. So I guess in some ways good, in some ways bad, but there is no substitute for human beings and talking to human beings, I find. So you get all the information you like on your iPhone or whatever it is you're using, but talking to pilots, talking to investigators, that's how you get to the nub of what's really happened for me. And do you get the chance to, to do that as part of your work? I'm pretty lucky. So I've, I've formed over the years a good relationship with the, the AAIB. Um, I've been down and uh, looked at all their equipment and I've had a look in their listening room, for example, where they, where they would replay back the messages from black boxes. Um, and so, you know, it's all electronically sealed and they show me what they do with the black box and you've got to dry them all out, first of all, all the circuits and the special oven for that. And they've got four speakers around the room because they want to recreate what the sound would have been like in the cockpit. So they're trying to recreate as accurately as possible what everyone on board would have been hearing. 
They tell me who's allowed in that room and who isn't allowed in that room. So I get all of that sort of unique information in advance. And then that means I can go on the telly pretty quickly and give an accurate description of what would really happen. So they got the the um, data recorders, for example, from MH17, I think it was, and then they came back to the UK. Um, and so when that happened, I was able to say roughly what the room looked like and what they would be doing and uh, and how it would all work. So it really helps in that respect. Well, personally speaking, I've always been very impressed with your the, the way that you report the story, the accuracy with, with which you do it. I've noticed so much in, in the press and also on social media, the sensationalization of some of these events, which really have turned out to be non-events. How are you able to filter out all the rubbish and actually get to the, the real story? And people want answers don't they and they want them quickly and frankly editors at the BBC are the same as everybody else they'll they'll read something and say oh I heard there was a missile going off I heard there was another plane in the vicinity I you know all of that sort of chatter going on around around these sort of major accidents and it is my job I think you're right to actually plough through that and get to the facts so I tend to write in my scripts you know what we actually know so far is this what it could suggest is this. So I think you do need to go down those realms of speculation a little bit, but I think the evidence can point you that way. So if there are obvious telltale signs, perhaps in the way that uh, the, the debris is scattered around, for example, can tell you how the aircraft um, um, broke up, whether it was midair, whether it hit the ground. There, there are conclusions you can draw with some of the evidence that's in front of you, but I try never to do that without speaking to an accident investigator, a former accident investigator, a pilot, an expert, basically, to double-check what I'm thinking. So I think I, I do probably go on air and say, well, these are the possibilities, it's probably not that, it probably is that. But I try to couch it in honest terms, I try to explain why I'm thinking that, and I try and back it up with people who really know their stuff who've properly investigated these things and know what they're talking about so certainly hopefully the, that keeps it in check yeah very much so and certainly the guys in the studio with me carlos and matt you know we're, we're reading stories every week and we talk about we're, we're reading it could be the daily mail it could be any publication actually and it talks about a, a 777 that's had a problem and they show a picture of an a320 that's fairly typical of, of some of the the written press how difficult is it for you to make sure that you your that all the picture editors you're working with have got all the right content, even if it's library. Uh, yeah, that, that is really tricky. And, you know, I'm often the one shouting at the telly as well. Um, but, uh, you know, to some extent, there are people around the BBC who just like aircraft who will notice these things. When things go out live on air, if it's wrong, often someone internally will just notice because it's their interest as well. So it doesn't tend to last for long. Uh, you know, people are professionals as well. They're used to putting this stuff out. They normally double check. Things are well labelled in the library. Um, but there is an element of once uh, a piece of misinformation has got out, it's very hard to kind of close the door afterwards. I do have a system basically on my iPhone. I can put something on an email and it will go out to the entire BBC. It goes on our internal uh, wire system. Mm. And I can put urgent, you know, from Richard Westcott, please stop saying this. It isn't this. It isn't that. You know, that, that works to some extent. It can, it can um, uh, you know, stop the fact being, or the lack of facts being repeated. Uh, so there are kind of ways I can get messages to people, but sometimes it takes three or four goes because you'll just hear it, and there's so much output on the BBC, you'll just hear it somewhere obscure, and kind of, and then sometimes they just ring up and say, actually, you're getting that wrong. So hopefully there's enough checks and balances. And how about social media? How do you use that? How do you use Twitter, for example? To get a lot of information, so it's a great place to just kind of go, 
has anyone got any expertise in this area? And obviously you double check what people are telling mm. you afterwards. But it's very handy for people who've worked in certain places, flown certain types of aircraft, who just happen to know what they're talking about. And as I say, we, we then talk to them privately away from, you know, well, Twitter tends to be the one we use, um, double check they are who they say they are and their credentials and so on. So it's very useful for gleaning information and also for putting out information. If there are things that are out there that are wrong and you find out they're wrong, you can say, well, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing that, and you hope it gets retweeted. It is when the big stories come along and I sort of... Like is the wrong word because you're often talking about tragedies, but the, the puzzles of when things go wrong with aircraft, it is interesting trying to get to the bottom of it. Uh, I mean, MH370 is probably the most interesting story I've ever covered. Mm. And it's, you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of the families and a lot of the people who've taken a keen interest in that. And it's still incredibly frustrating not knowing what's happened to that aircraft. So I, I find all of that... Uh, you know, fascinator. I went to Malaysia to talk to the, the sister of the pilot of MH370. Gosh. Well, that was amazing. She's a fantastic woman, Sakin Abshar. Really interesting person, really rational. You know, you would sort of think she'd sit and go, oh, no, it wouldn't be my brother kind of doing that. It couldn't mm. possibly. She had very rational answers for why she really didn't think it was her brother because he was just a, actually a pretty ordinary guy with a nice, happy, stable family life. She lived around the corner from him. All the family knew him. So, you know, that gives you a unique insight. And to be able to get to go and do things like that behind the scenes, I think is just fascinating. A, it's an amazing place to visit. B, she's an amazing woman to meet. A lot of reporting or a lot of reporters may not have that opportunity. You, you've made the effort to go and do that. So it gives you a much better insight behind the, uh, the tragedy that, that unfolded. Clearly. Yeah, I think I need to give that as well because I am a specialist. I can't just say what's on all the wires. I have to give that background information. So if something's happened to an aircraft, the first thing I do is ring a pilot of that type of aircraft mm. and just say, okay, so, you know, what do the switches look like? When this is happening, what alarms would be going off? What would they sound like? Get that real detailed information because then I want to go on the radio and the telly and explain what's actually happening, what, what, would, you know, what it all would have looked like, what it all would have sounded like. And because I'm a specialist, I'm able to do that. I've got a bit of space and time to do that. So that's a real privilege, I think. From your point of view, what's the most difficult part of your job? It is getting it right. It's the deadlines. Um, the fact is TV is very logistical, so I actually haven't got hours to sit there and plough through and get all the facts absolutely perfect because just sorting out where TV crews go, who you interview, getting the pictures is so complex. That is 90% of television. Um, and it's frustrating not to have more time to dig down into the story. So I think that that's what's tricky. Say something happens at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm cutting a piece for the 6 o'clock news that night. You're also doing all the radio as well. And just that sort of panic, really, mm. about getting everything absolutely right and accurate and getting good pictures and getting interesting guests to talk to and producing it something that makes sense and tells the story and is right. Would you prefer to be slightly later with the story, but at least you have more accuracy and more depth um, rather than trying to break it too soon? I think it's a really good question. I get asked this a lot. I did a conference for the um, AAIB, their 100-year anniversary. I spoke at the conference, so that was a real honour and a fabulous mm. day as well. And I've done in I've spoken at international accident conf um, investigator conferences and they all say the same thing. Why do you rush to get it on air? Why don't you wait until you know what's happened and then put out all the facts? But that just 
isn't the way news works. That's not the way editors work. Everybody else is putting stuff out there. It's a competitive industry. We have to say something. And the way I get around that is to have that background knowledge, is to go on air and say, look, okay, this is what we know. This is the type of aircraft. This is how old it was. This is what accident investigators will be looking for when they arrive on the scene. These are the clues we have so far, but it's early days. So I go on, I go on air as quickly as I can, but I don't pretend that I know exactly what's happened. And that, that's kind of my way around it. There's a lot of pressure, presumably, from the editorial team to get something on air as soon as you can. And maybe if it's a, a five o'clock story that's breaking for the six, as, as an example, that must be very difficult from, from your point of view. It's very, very difficult. It did happen. Uh, it's normally on a Friday. There tend to be <laughs> aircraft accidents. Even the pilots say that. Yes. You know, <laughs> um, there was a, um, They had a battery fire on a Dreamliner at... Pretty sure it was Heathrow. Yeah, that's right. Um, yes, yeah. So it wasn't the main. So obviously, there'd been battery fires with mm. the Dreamliners, and that was a huge story. And actually, I went to Ethiopia when to see how Boeing were mending those batteries Gosh. or the system they put in place to, to stop the fire spreading yeah. rather than mending. Um, and we went on the first flight of a Dreamliner after it after it was grounded. Um, this was after that. It was a different type of fire. It turns out in the end, but that happened. Or we found out about that at about five o'clock on a Friday. Frankly, I was just walking out the door um, and suddenly everyone wants a piece of the story, yeah. the radio, the TV. And it turns out the aircraft that caught fire was the one I'd been on in Ethiopia. Was it? Really? So we actually yeah. saw the sort of code on it and, and I was able to go on yeah. telly and just say, I've been on that aircraft. I know they fixed the batteries on that particular aircraft because I watched them do it. Gosh. Uh, so I was able to give a bit of insight that it probably wasn't a similar battery problem to the one that had grounded the, the other aircraft. Yeah. But it's panicky. Definitely. Yes, I, I can imagine that. Um, what's the most ch challenging part about your job? I've said, what's, what's after you, what's the most difficult? What's, what are the, the biggest challenges that, that you face? Well, for me, I like to go and find stories that are interesting, but a, a little bit different. But it, it's kind of hard to find the space to go and do that. So I do the day-to-day -day stuff. Where are they going to build a runway you know, in the southeast of England? What's happening with the Southern Rail Strike? All the obvious day-to-day -day mm. stuff. But I like to go away and find you know, developments in, in various industries that are a bit different and unique. So recently we went up in the in the Siemens electric plane. That took a bit oh, of time. Oh, I saw the, uh, the to, piece you did to that. Sort yeah, out. that. But I just, it's so fascinating yes. to get, you know, and so quiet yeah, <laughs> when you're going up. And, <laughs> yes. um, and so actually to make that happen and mm. get the resources to make that happen, regardless of what people think, you know, we're not awash with money. I can't just turn up and say to an editor, I want to go here, there or everywhere and can, will you pay for it? Yes. I have to justify it. Um, so it's just balancing, really, the day-to-day mm. -day stuff, which I have to be around for, with that interesting, quirky stuff that predicts the future of transport that everyone loves. Um, yes, I was going to... It takes a bit of finding. Yeah, it does. I was going to ask you about that, because obviously there's the very dynamic situation of, you know, real-time aircraft accidents and incidents. But then, of course, there's the ongoing stuff of things like, you know, the third runway, which I think we're into about the 16th year now of, of discussion about it. I feel it's coming to an end at some point, but there's always a story and there's always a political story surrounding it as well. How do you cover that kind of thing? It keeps me going. Yes. Things like that. HS2, another one, the high-speed yes. railway. These stories just rumble mm. on and on and on i do wonder sometimes if that runway will ever get built it seems in a good place at the moment but then it did before when labor yeah. approved it yeah. um so uh, in, they're, they're great stories like that because they get me on air because they're in, interesting because they involve a lot of money and a lot of people's lives and i try to cover every aspect from the politics and the big economics down to the people who 
have to live under the flight path and suffer the pollution and all the rest of it. So I do enjoy those stories um, and they are my bread and butter. Um, and I know they'll never resolve, really. So yes. that's the other thing. I, I don't expect to be doing this job if they ever put a spade in the ground and start building that. Thing. No, it's endless content, really, <laughs> yeah. isn't it, from your point of view? Speculation, yeah. And everyone's saying to me, is this going to happen now? And I think, I don't know, because no one can say. What's always interesting about these stories is I turn up and say, well, what do you think is going to happen like that? And they turn up and say, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> Everyone is a bit in the dark. Yeah. And, it te even th and it tends to come down to the politicians. And then yes. half the time, they don't know. Yeah. So people are not as well informed quite often as everyone thinks. They just go by what they read in the papers, the gossip, and what they think the Prime Minister and the, and the Chancellor of the time are, are going to do. And they're the, often the two most important people. And these stories develop tremendous amounts of momentum as well. And you get to the, you eventually get to the real story, or maybe there isn't a real story. So there's actually a lot of chatter and, and background information without any real conclusion for the time being. Do, do you find that a lot? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, I'm regularly kind of rung at weekends saying there's this little bit of gossip in the paper and it'll be some MP has leaked something to some newspaper saying, oh, he throws a goner. You know, I, I remember when George Osborne was supposedly going to, you know, ditch HS2 yes. and then it was going to come back and then someone else was going to ditch mm. Heathrow and then what happens if Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister? It's endless gossip. It's endless, oh, this is it, that's the end of the project. And then suddenly, a month later, you know, the government's making big announcements how it's all going to go ahead. So it is a bit, it's a bit of a roller coaster. I treat a lot of it with a pinch of salt now. I've learned that. Yes. And do you have a good relationship with people like the Transport Secretary, for example? So um, not so you get necessarily get the inside story, but at least you have a, a fair crack of the whip when it comes to, to briefing and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I've had three Transport Secretaries now so in five years. It was Justine Greening when I first started, and mm. Patrick McLaughlin, and now Chris Grayling. Yeah. Actually, I've, I thought they're all very nice people. I've mm. got on with them. They're good to talk to once you actually meet them face to face. Uh, and they've got nice staff around them. So actually, yeah, I do feel that we have a, a good relationship, really. And I, I try to get on with the, you know, all of those people in government because they're the people who give you the information, not that they, you know, they hand out that much. The, I guess the problem with some of this stuff is a lot of it comes from the Treasury. That's sort of a little bit off my patch. So to an extent, the Department for Transport is told what to do by the Treasury. So half the time, they don't know. But yeah, we, we, we keep as good relations as we can mm. with all the politicians, because as I say, actually, they're the people that make the decisions in the end. And do you, do you get sort of advanced briefing, advanced information about things that the government are proposing to actually put out into the public domain? Sometimes. We always ask for it. Uh, we will sometimes get things on embargoes uh, because they're big and they're complex. And my argument is always, if you want me to go on telly three minutes later and explain what you're saying or explain the story and you want me to be accurate, not just basically speed read a, an executive summary and then and make it up as I'm going along desperately trying to get the facts right, well, yeah. then I need some advance notice. But that is quite common practice around journalism. You know, we are given an advance peak on some of the more complex stuff. Not all the time. Sometimes we do get things thrown at us last minute. But, yeah, I mean, we always try to get it because it obviously makes our job easier in terms of accuracy. Yes, of course. Well, that's been absolutely superb. Thanks very much indeed, Richard. And we always ask all of our guests, you're clearly an aviation enthusiast, what would be your favourite plane to fly on, either current uh, or in, in the past? SR-71. Oh, right. Okay. No doubt at all. That was a very you know, definite I, response. I started <laughs> writing a children's book. I never managed to get it published. I keep going back to it, but it's yeah. all about the pilot's experience of flying. 
um, what it's actually like to fly some of these aircraft. So I've spoken to some Blackbird pilots. It's just amazing. I mean, they used to heat their food on the window. It got so hot. So they'd hold the tube up against it. Yeah. And they had these fantastic medicals before they flew because the navigator at the back wasn't able to fly the aircraft and the, and the pilot at the front wasn't able to navigate the aircraft. So if one or other of them got ill... They were in real trouble. <laughs> they they yeah. couldn't bring that thing down. I just think it's the most amazing piece of engineering, fascinating aircraft. As a real shame they they ditched it because it could still be doing a good job today. And that's so often the case, isn't it? We're we're finding not just in the military but in the civil world, um, it's all been a bit sort of. Everyone's looking at economics all the time, so actually high-performance aircraft, certainly in the civil world, is is very rare uh, these days. It's all about uh, economy and trying to make the passenger um, fares and all the rest of it uh, more reasonable, I guess. It is. I am fascinated to see if anyone ever makes supersonic passenger flight viable in terms of how polluting it is as well as how expensive it is and how noisy it is. We'll see. It would be fantastic if they could come up with some kind of propulsion system that would get us around really quickly and not you know, wreck the planet and be really noisy. So I, I hope that someone is able to do something along those lines. And that, that's the, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime. Though. I think we always say the same <laughs> thing. We always wish it does, but uh, we don't know. Thanks so much for today, Richard. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's been fun. Sunday the 20th of August saw myself, Carlos, Owen and Nev all gather at the Seething Air Show. Once again we broadcast our show live from there and it gave us a great opportunity to get some brilliant interviews. The last in our interviews that we have from the Seething Air Show is with Bob Grinstead and his flying back catalogue must be the envy of so many people. He really is one of the most fascinating people to talk to. We're still at ceiling then, the sun is shining and uh, me and Nev uh, are here uh, right close to the flight line and we've been joined by Bob. Now Bob, you're the uh, pilot on the Fournier. That's right, uh, Fournier we call Red Hawk because it's red and white really. It's all. Great, so tell us a bit about the aircraft. What, uh, what type of aircraft is this? The aeroplane was mm, designed in the early 60s, made in 1968. It's all wood, uh, very, very strong but it only has a little... <laughs> a little Volkswagen car engine, a Volkswagen Beetle car engine, like Herbie, you know, if you've ever seen the Herbie movies, except much smaller than Herbie's. And because of that, it needs to have a long wing to give it minimum drag to be able to perform at all. So the thing that I can do that other people can't do is I can have smoke on my wingtips because they're 40 feet apart uh, to give twin smoke trails, whereas most people just have a single centerline smoke. So that's something I have that's a little bit different from what everybody else does. So I took some photos ago earlier when you were doing a display. Great display, I will say. Uh, we're going we're to put the pictures on our website and on the show as well with the uh, show notes. Um, what does it take to put on a display like you've done today? What kind of um, training and, and stuff goes in, into uh, preparing for a display? Uh, it goes back a long way. I started display flying in 1982 in Volkswagen-powered airplanes, but not this type. They were Druin Turbulence with a formation flying team, the Tiger Club's Turbulent team. Uh, and then I came away from displaying for a few years, flew the airlines, and then I came back when I retired, bought one of these Fourniers in Australia in 2004, uh, and just I wanted to improve my aerobatics at that stage, and after about two years of that, people started saying, you should do displays again, you know. So I started in Australia, I flew for the Red Bull Air Race a couple of times in Australia, and the guys were organising the Red Bull Air Race said, oh, we're doing one in London, can you come and display for us in London? So I had to run around in England and find one to buy here, and I bought that, I can't remember now, 
six or seven years ago. Um, and I've been displaying ever since. But the answer to your question about how much preparation, I think I'd done something like 200 practice sequences before I first displayed it. It's very low power, and you have to have a feel for the aeroplane. You feel through it, feel it through your fingertips, like Safecracker's fingertips, to, to ease it and tease it through all the maneuvers so that you don't lose energy all the time. And that just needs constant practice. I think I did, uh, I certainly did two or three practices this last week. I had another display last week and weekend. I did something like 12 practices the week before. You've got to be really on top of the aeroplane to be able to coax that out of the aeroplane without losing height all the time. Uh, I used to start high and accept the height loss. Now, I can't afford to lose height, so I start low, so I have to be a bit better than I used to be. I hope my display improves every year, and that's the idea, is to get better all the time. No, it looked fantastic. Yeah, we really enjoyed the display. But it, it looks like a really nimble and agile aircraft. Just how is, is it an easy aircraft to, to control and fly in the manner you fly? It's an easy aeroplane to fly. It's a very easy aeroplane to fly normally, bearing in mind it's only got one main wheel, so you've got to be fairly good at balancing on takeoff and landing. Uh, flying aerobatics in it is easy too. It's flying a continuous sequence of aerobatics for four minutes without losing any height or airspeed. That is difficult. That is something that's taken me uh, 16 years or something to perfect. I think until last year, probably even the year before last, last year, I was having to start higher. But each year I was able to start at a slightly lower height, a slightly lower height, as I got used to the feel of the aeroplane. It's a very, very low-powered aeroplane, about 40 horsepower. 40 horsepower. Yeah, well, you look at those pitches and they've got 200 or 300 horsepower. I've got 40. So you really do have to coax the aeroplane all the time and you can't stop. The moment I stop doing aerobatics, I'm coming down. So I have to, each maneuver has to follow on from the previous maneuver and follow on and follow on. Otherwise, you just lose energy and run out of puff and stop. So what is the power to weight ratio of the aircraft? Uh, the aeroplane weighs 390 kilos at max weight, at 370 kilos at display weight, 40 horsepower. So it's about uh, one horsepower per 10 kilos or something, whatever that is in power to weight ratio. Nothing. I mean, basically, if you look at the aeroplane, look at the length of the wing and the tiny diameter of the propeller, and then look at a pit, which has got a short wing and a huge propeller, it gives you some idea of the difference of the power to weight ratio or the thrust to weight ratio of the aeroplane. So duration, uh, full tanks, you know, how long can you kind of, uh, what's the longest sort of flight you can do? I've, I have flown for three hours, 40 minutes, but um, normally I plan on two, two and a half hours at about 100 miles an hour. Uh, it works out at 34 miles to the gallon at 100 miles an hour, <laughs> which, because it's a Volkswagen engine. Um, I've actually got a, an auxiliary tank uh, in the process of being approved. I've made the setup, but I'm getting it approved for longer flights into Europe. I'm hoping to do some more displays in Europe next year. I did several displays in Europe in previous years, France and Germany and Sweden and Norway. Um, I'd like to go as far as Italy and maybe Poland, uh, Poland in the future because there are displays, there are shows going on over there. I'm retired, my time's my own. I, just like to explore Europe at somebody else's expense and have fun in different places, really. I think most aviation geeks would, would say you've probably got the best job in the world, really, your best retirement job, anyway. Well, it's not a job, it's a hobby, but yeah, it is. It's great fun. I, I flew airliners for 33 years. That's great. That, really? That's yeah, yeah, and I enjoyed doing that. I, I, 
I feel my temperament was well suited to doing that, and I loved doing that. But after 33 years of doing anything, it's time for a change, and I was happy to walk away from that when I was compulsorily retired at age 55. And, you know, as you do, I thought, right, what can I do now? I'll improve my aerobatics, and that's led on to this. And if I could, I don't think I'll get 33 years of this, but if I can get 20 or so, 25 years of doing this, that'll be great. So you said the aircraft's got a uh, Volkswagen engine. Yes. Uh, obviously, Volkswagen, a well-known brand. Is it an easy engine to maintain and get parts and, and to look after? It is, if you treat it properly. This one has a fairly new Volkswagen engine built by a chap called John Maher, who used to be the drummer for the Buzzcocks, and he has a business up on the Isle of Lewis in, in Scotland, and he builds racing engines. This is a fully balanced type racing engine. It's not a powerful engine, but it should go on forever. My Australian Fournier, uh, 1968 aeroplane, still has its original 1968 engine, so it's 49 years old. Nominally they can do 1,500 hours, that one's done 1,412 hours, so I'd like to keep it going for 50 years, and it still runs fine. If you keep them cool, if you treat them properly, and I don't know if you noticed, when I finished my display, I went pottering all the way around there to let the engine cool down gently. Treat the Volkswagen engine properly, it'll go forever. Well, not forever, but it'll go for a very long time. So tell us a bit about your uh, flying career. Where, you know, where, where do things start for you with, uh, with, with, you know, with the passion for flying? I was with the Air Cadets, like so many people. I was in the Air Cadets, and, and in those days, the Air Cadets gave you opportunities to f do gliding and to do flying. I did a gliding uh, proficiency course with them. I went solo in a glider at the age of 16 or something, 16 and a half, 1964. Um, I'd hoped to do uh, my PPL private pilot's license through the air, tra the air cadets but that wasn't possible at that time with government cuts and of course there's very little flying goes on the air cadets now I think it's shameful um, so many of us here probably at least half of the display pilots here will have started with the air cadets um, having done that I thought is this cool somebody said to me you could do that for a living really so I applied to what was then BOAC and BEA they ran a training school at Hamble near Southampton applied to them and I was very fortunate because at every stage of the way they said yes come along join in learn to fly they taught me to fly we had to fly and then I got a job with BOAC it was part of the deal I then for the first five years of my job they were taking money out of my salary to pay an amount towards the cost of my flying training it didn't cover the whole of it probably paid only for about a quarter of it but from then on BOAC, which was then subsumed into British Airways, employed me all my life. I did work for other airlines at various times, but um, no, it was a brilliant career. I had a wonderful time, um, great airline, very proud to have worked for it, certainly back in those days. Uh, and as I say, I used to do a bit of aerobatics, a bit of display flying in between because I belonged to the Tiger Club, had fun, but never, because I was mostly flying long haul and I was often jet lagged, I thought it's imprudent to do display flying when you're jet lagged. I had three years of short haul flying and that's when I did the display flying. But then after that, when I went back to long haul flying, I thought, no, this is something to do in retirement. Think about it then. Um, because you're just a long haul pilot is never quite fully with it, fully focused. Sometimes you are, but you can't predict that on a certain weekend or on a certain occasion you're going to be fully with it. So I thought it was imprudent to do display flying while I was long haul flying. So I'm a commercial jet fan, love me uh, big passenger jets. You know, what, what are some of the aircraft you've flown? Well, I started on Boeing 707s. I, went there, I learned to fly on a Cherokee. I managed to snaffle about 15 hours in chipmunks, including aerobatics, which was brilliant, thanks to my instructor Ray Kurzweil. Then I went on to Barron's and I had 225 hours, or a bit more than that because I'd done a bit of other flying outside. 
And when I joined BOAC, if I had 250 hours, I would go two steps up the pay scale. So I cast around in late 1970 to find an aeroplane I could rent for not very much money uh, to do some flying to build up 15 more hours. And there was a company called Sport Air in Biggin Hill where young Brendan O'Brien... I'm sorry, but I just wanted the opportunity to say that was the best RF4 display that I've seen in a very long time. Oh, how very, very kind of you. And this is from a man who holds, I don't know how many records in well, RF4s. I've done a few hours, as you know, on the RF4s. And so can I just... <laughs> well, thank you very, very much, President. It's really kind of you to thank say you. Thank you. I thought yours was crap. Yeah, Brendan and I both joined Sport Air in 1970, 1971, uh, because they had the cheapest aeroplanes then, um, which were Fourniers. And that very aeroplane was the first Fournier I soloed in 19, late 1970, in fact and um, did a bit of flying with Sporter then for four or five years, enjoyed that, did a little bit of aerobatics, but again, concentrated on my career. So when I got into the right-hand seat of a Boeing 707, going to Honolulu, and I didn't know where Honolulu was, um, it was the first time I'd ever been in a jet, it was the first time I'd ever been outside Britain, um, and off I went in the right seat out of Heathrow in this Boeing 707 with 250 hours, green as you could possibly believe, completely wet behind the ears, and just... Started a brilliant career, Boeing 707s, uh, did a brief period with Monarch Luton on Boeing 720B, which was a pocket rocket Boeing 707, lighter, um, shorter, but with the same engine, so it went like a, well, meant like a guided missile, really, super airplane. Um, 707s were folded up, so I ended up being a steward for a year, and 737s for three years, and that's when I did the display flying. The year I was a steward, and the uh, three years I was flying 737s, then back on to 747s, doing bows. Uh, from 747 to 747-400, right seat, co-pilot, and then I had to come off them to go on the 757 to get my command, 767. I flew the 777 just to write an article about it, and back to the 747-400 for the last five years as a skipper. So, magic, charmed career. I was very, very fortunate. Wow, we've, we've found gold here, I think, Nev. That's, uh, what an amazing uh, array of aircraft. I think you've flown all the, all the Boeing products, I think. All, all the potted Boeings. I never flew the 727. As well, it so happens, in parallel with that, shortly after I gave up display flying, I got divorced, needed money, and started writing articles for Aviation Magazine, predominantly Pilot Magazine, which is Britain's premier GA magazine. Uh, written something like 300 articles. And as a consequence of that, I got to fly, I think it's 245 types of aeroplane to write articles about them. So I've had, uh, from you know, powered parachutes and airships and balloons to business jets and as I said, the 777, they said, yeah, come and fly the simulator, come and have a go in the aeroplane, we want you to write an article about that sort of thing. It's been, it has absolutely been a charm career. I love aviation, I love aeroplanes, I love flying, I love the people involved and I've been able to do all that sort of stuff, almost free of charge all my life by various devious means, yeah. What an amazing career you've had. Absolutely fantastic. I'm going to ask you one question yeah. before we wrap up. It's a question we ask all the pilots we interview on the show, uh, all the air shows we go to and attend. It's a kind of put-you-on-the-spot question, yeah, sure. but uh, I'm sure you'll, you'll master the, uh, the answer with all the aircraft you've flown. So given the chance to fly any aircraft, either retired or still flying, commercial, GA, military, what would that aircraft be that you'd, you'd love to hop in right now and take out for a flight? Top of the list would be the Hawker Hunter. Absolutely top of the list, Hawker Hunter. Um, there are others. If you look at categories, um, 
in terms of an airliner, I'd love to fly a Stratocruiser or a Super Constellation. Love to. Even a DC, well, I don't mean even a DC-6 or a DC-7. Anybody out there with a DC-6 <laughs> or 7, I'd love to fly with them. Um, yes, I've only flown Dakota as the biggest airliner, biggest piston airliner I've flown. Um, coming down to smaller aeroplanes, um, fighter-type aeroplanes, um, I guess warbirds, I think we'd all love to fly the Sea Fury. Fabulous aeroplane I would love to fly. And coming smaller still, there's one type of aeroplane that is around, and that's the cosmic wind. Man, cosmic wind. I think Ballerina, Pete Kinsey's green cosmic wind. I've loved that since I first saw Peter Phillips display that in Big Inn Hill in 1964 or 5, and I fell in love with that aeroplane there and then. That's a beautiful aeroplane. So, yeah, there's, there's a list of a few I'd like to fly. I shan't, I shan't fly any of them now, but, uh, yeah, nice to, nice to see them. Nice to see them at air shows. Nice to dream. So on behalf of the Plane Talking UK uh, crew here at Seeding, I'm going to say a massive thank you to you for your time, and it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. And uh, I think we could probably probably do a whole show just uh, just chatting here uh, about about your flying career. I think, but uh, no, thank you for for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you all very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to fly here as well today. It's just a lovely show, Seeding. Lovely people, great people, small venue, and a number of you know just the right sort of crowd size where you can actually go and talk to people. So that's what I'm going to go and do now. Thank you very much. All the best for the future. Thank you. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com The Plain Talking UK podcast is a voluntary project that aims to keep you informed with the latest aviation-related stories from newswires across the globe. Producing our content does cost money, though. If you enjoy our show, why not help us keep on the air by making a donation towards the server and website hosting fees through PayPal. Any contributions would be greatly appreciated. Are you an Amazon user? If so, why not do your shopping through the link on our website? There's no cost to yourself, and Amazon pay us a small referral fee on qualifying purchases. To find out more about the show and to meet the team, take yourself to our website website www.plaintalkinguk.com or find us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash uk on twitter via at uk or get in touch via email on podcast at plaintalkinguk.com thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening. flyby5823 trent dane for two three hour manchester with air 6x client flight level 210 direct to Bretman's park United, one, two, three, maintain two, eight, zero knots. London to DME, turn right onto Bravo, link to one, join Alpha, hold at Mora. Speedbird 472, LOC slash DME, approach runway 27 left. Follow the green stand 544. That's enough air traffic control for today, Nat. Bedtime. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to fly a commercial passenger jet? Looked up at the sky and thought, I wish that was me? Well, now anyone has the chance to have a go at flying in a real aircraft simulator. NP Simulations and Flight Experience London, the only official Boeing-licensed product of its kind in the UK, offer you the chance to fly anywhere in the world in their fixed-base Boeing 737-800 Flight Simulator. And that's not all. Ground School London offers many different courses for the up-and-coming pilot looking for a start in aviation. With prices starting at just £109, the sky's the limit. So for the ultimate flight simulator experience or engaging preparatory courses, including those for schools and colleges, check 
check out the websites at www.london.flightexperience.co.uk and www.groundschoollondon.com or call on 020 300 40 616. NP Simulations. Fly your dreams. It's been a great year for the Plane Safety Podcast as well, and Pilot Pip is still sending in regular segments to our show. This year, however, there was a small tinge of sadness as Pip had to say goodbye to his beloved hawker. Plane Safety from the Flight Deck with Pilot Pip. Hey everyone, it's Pip here. Well, my time on the hawker is drawing to an end. I'm here on my very last tour on the Hawker, and in fact tomorrow will be my last few flights. Got three short flights around the UK scheduled, and then that will be it. My time on the Hawker will be done. Such a shame. But it's been a really fun last tour, actually. We've done some really good trips, some classic Hawker flights, uh, some nice long flights. We did five hours yesterday from Batumi to London. Yeah, Batumi. I'll let you figure out where that is. Go and look on a map because I had to look it up as well. But these are the trips I love. The Hawker's got such a great range. It's so versatile. We can fill the thing up with fuel and passengers and off we go. Two and a half thousand miles easy. For a little aeroplane, that's pretty good. So I will miss the uh, aircraft terribly. But I'm, you know, I'm getting excited for the new one. I've been reading up. I've been studying. It looks pretty swanky. It's got some clever avionics and a nice coffee machine as I said before but also this tour uh, I've been to Moscow a couple of times and you know when we see Moscow or somewhere in Russia come up on our schedule we usually roll our eyes and go oh not Russia and that's not fair at all because actually it's it's great it's fun going to Russia uh, it's different I'll give it that it is a little bit different they've got some different procedures and some different ways of doing things and it's really our own ignorances and and prejudices that perhaps make it slightly more of a chore than it needs be but I thought I'd take this opportunity as it's my last time going to Russia for certainly quite a while I thought I'd talk a little bit about Russia operations because on the new aircraft on the Embraer uh, we won't be going to Russia at all I got just yesterday my invitation to renew my Russian visa for Brits we have to that's an annual process we have to renew our Russian visa every year so I got a an email from the embassy saying your visa is due so I emailed straight away my would-be new fleet manager I said hey Roger for tis his name I said hey Roger uh, should I bother renewing my Russian visa am I going to need it and he immediately wrote back and said nah save yourself the hassle we or you will not be going to Russia on the new jet and actually I find that a little bit sad I do enjoy going to Moscow and St. Petersburg and some of those weird and wacky out-of-the-way places you've never heard of and there are many of them because of course Russia is absolutely flipping enormous Uh, there are so many wonderful places to go Uh, Krasnodar we were in the other day you know St. Petersburg there's Chelyabinsk there's Yekaterinburg there's so many places but as I say it is a little bit different flying there Um, and one of the biggest challenges is of course language. Uh, Russian and English really aren't similar at all and you know to look at road signs and things like that it's really quite 
a difficult task to translate because these, of course, they use a, a totally different alphabet. You know, if you're in France or Germany or Italy somewhere, you can at least have a stab at translating it because you recognize the letters uh, in Russian with a Cyrillic alphabet. It's totally different. And English isn't particularly widely spoken. Of course, English is still the international language of aviation. And as air traffic controllers and uh, aviation workers, you know, English is widely spoken. But with quite a wide range of ability, I would say. Generally, the Moscow air traffic controllers are all great. They speak fluent English, of course, but it can be very heavily accented. And it's not that's in itself isn't a problem. You know, um, go to France and they'll speak with a heavy French accent or go to Italy, speak with a heavy Italian accent, go to America and they speak with just a weird accent. I can't understand a word they say over there. But at least we're very used to those accents and you, you know, you learn, you get an ear for them over time with a bit of practice. You get better at it. But Russian's not a language and an accent we hear all that often. So it can be a little more difficult to become accustomed to the Russian accent. So that's that's just a small challenge from that point of view is transmitting instructions and, and understanding what they're saying back to you. So the best thing there is to be as standard as possible. You know, just use standard words, descent, climb, speed, all that sort of stuff. If you need to ask for something a little bit out of the ordinary, then that's where it can potentially start to become a little bit different. Uh, but that really comes into play when you get on the ground and you're having to interact with airport workers, you know, ramp workers, refuelers, uh, the dreaded security people, good Lord. Then language is a bit of a problem, I'll be honest. Now, you could say and you could argue that for someone like me who's going to Russia regularly, that I should stop being so damn lazy, being a typical lazy Brit, and learn a bit of Russian. And uh, that would be an entirely proper good argument to make i probably should after all these years 10 years i should have learned a little bit of russian as it is i don't think i can say anything other than thank you and hello now one of the main differences when it comes to flying procedures is the fact that over there they're metric they use meters whereas we use feet they use meters and you could Again, roll your eyes and say, oh, those pesky Russians, why are they being so difficult and using meters? Well, actually, believe it or not, they're correct and we're wrong. It was agreed a long time ago at ICAO level that the standard unit of measurements would be the meter. ICAO agreed that the metric system would be the standard used. Uh, It's just that, for whatever reason, us, the Americans and everyone else, we were just too damn lazy to do anything about it. So actually, the Russians are entirely correct to be using the metric system. But in fact, they are converting to feet, and that process is almost now complete. Back when I started flying into Russia regularly, uh, when you got to the Russian border, you'd be at a flight level in feet, let's say 40,000 feet or flight level 400. And just before you got to the border, you would have to adjust to a metric flight level. So perhaps 13,000 meters, for instance. But actually, a couple of years ago, that disappeared. So now at the higher levels above what we call transition altitude, it's actually all in feet. And you don't switch to metric until much later on in the approach when you get closer to the ground and pass below the transition level. So now you'll stay on feet until you're down all the way towards the ground. I think transition level in the Moscow area is around about uh, 6,000 feet or so. And then below that, as you descend to an altitude, 
you'll then have to convert to feet. And, you know, that's not a big problem. In the Hawker, it's just a matter of a couple of uh, buttons to push. You hit a button called the refs, which brings up the references page. You do a bit of knob twiddling. You twiddle your knob and go down to a little selection where you can choose feet or metric. As a lot of knob twiddling goes on in the Hawker, especially on those five-hour trips. So you convert to meters and the, you'll then be flying heights in meters. And I emphasize the word heights because as well as being metric, they also fly on QFE over in Russia. And generally in the Western world, um, perhaps the military are a bit of an exception, but generally we fly on QNH, which is altitude measured above sea level, whereas QFE is height measured above the ground. Now, I'm not going to go into a lengthy discussion about the difference between the two, but in Moscow, they use QFE, which again, isn't a big problem, but you do need to bear it in mind because there's a a couple of implications there for things like, oh, I don't know, eGPWS systems. You need to have an awareness of, of the difference between the QFE and the QNH. Now, if you're flying an older aircraft that doesn't have fancy electronics, then you're having to make these conversions using paper charts and tables. And mm, that can be fraught with a, a little bit of danger, I suppose, if you're not uh, very much paying attention. It would be quite easy to end up in a situation where you're much lower for instance, than you think you are. So you end up flying a height in metres as you approach one of the three uh, Moscow airports. It's generally Moscow we're going to. And uh, they've got three main airports there. They've got Sheremetyevo, they've got Domodedovo and Nukovo. Uh, Nukovo is the one we generally use more than the other two. But, you know, we go to all of them. There's a few other airports dotted around as well, the Moscow area. And typically in Russia... They tend to bring you in on quite a short final. So you'll come down quite low quite early. So it's quite important to start configuring quite early because if you're not really on the ball, you'll suddenly find yourself on a four or five mile final at quite a high speed if you haven't started to, to configure early. And also that because you're so much closer to the ground, typically you're coming in at maybe a 1500 feet or 2000 feet when you pick up the ILS. The, uh, because you're closer to the ground, you get a definite sensation of moving faster. I mean, you're not really, it's just a, a sense of perspective. But it does seem to have a, um, a sort of psychological effect if you perceive everything to be happening much faster around you. <laughs> and of course, one of the other fun things of the Moscow area is the airports all have so many different arrivals to them, which take you to the same runway pages and pages of arrivals and half the fun of it is going through and trying to work out which one it is you're going to get and you can absolutely guarantee whichever one you finally decide on it'll be the other one so you come in you eventually come round hopefully you've got yourself sorted you're pooping a pile as Nick would say get yourself slowed down and you end up on the ILS and you will always get the obligatory clear to land good luck I don't know why they feel the need to say good luck with every landing clearance, but they do it. Maybe they know something we don't. And then, hopefully, if you can see the runway, you'll land on it. Uh, and I say hopefully if you can see the runway because Moscow or Russian winters are severe. That's one of the other big challenges of flying in Russia and in Moscow is the weather. It can be pretty damned tricky. Now, I was there just yesterday. Uh, late September and the temperature already is dropped to mm, 
four or five degrees Celsius in the evening. So it's quite chilly and I'm certain it's only a matter of a few weeks before the first snows arrive. And when they do, they are there for the long term. Uh, there's always snow in Moscow over the winter. Always, always, always. You can guarantee it. And lots of it as well. And all sorts of other winter hazards like freezing fog, freezing rain, which is particularly nasty stuff. You don't want to get caught in freezing rain. It will put ice all over your aircraft very quickly, which is a, a dangerous thing potentially. Uh, low visibilities, blowing snow. It can be tricky. And of course... Uh, slippery runways are something we really have to think about very carefully in Moscow. They have slightly different ways of measuring braking coefficients there, so you have to uh, be mindful of that. They'll give you a braking coefficient much as they do over here, but you, you need to remember they're using a, a different scale. And often the braking coefficient that they give you over the radio bears no relation to the actual braking coefficient. I've, uh, on several occasions, landed there where the braking action was supposedly good, uh, only to touch down and go skidding along the runway sideways. Well, I exaggerate a little bit, but you can certainly feel the aircraft skidding around underneath you as you try and gently apply the brakes. But by and large, flying's the easy bit. Flying in and out of Moscow. Yeah, that's okay, there's some challenges, but that's the, the easier bit. The real challenge actually comes on the ground. There are endless, endless forms to be signed. Bureaucracy is rife in Russia, um, you know, because of the the way their state developed, I suppose, a communist government. There were jobs for everybody. And, uh, you know, everyone has something to do. There's, you know, you go out into Moscow and you'll see whole gangs of people just sweeping streets or painting fences. You know, unemployment is probably around zero. And so it is at the airport. You've got guys just wandering around with forms and they come along, give you a form, and it's all in Russian. You've absolutely no idea what it says. And they say, here, sign. And you say, hey, what's this form for? And their standard answer is, security, security. Oh, another security form. Okay, so you sign it. I've no idea what it is I'm signing. But after 10 years, no one's come and put me in prison or kidnapped my family or anything. So I'm assuming it's probably okay. And they're very hot on customs and immigration there. Uh, you know, if you arrive without a valid visa, oof, you are in for an ordeal. And I've done that once. Uh, you know, occasionally we just don't have a choice. We go there and we haven't got a valid visa. That's a, like a two or at least a three-hour process of going rounds to the visa office and having a temporary visa issued. It's a nightmare. But you land there and you're not really allowed to open the door until the customs and immigration people come to the aircraft. And you recognize these because these are the people with enormous silly hats. Something in Russia about wearing a, a big hat. The bigger your hat, the more important you are, I think. So the customs people come out, open the door, passports is the first thing they'll say. Passports. <laughs> Not, hello, welcome to Russia. It's just part of their job, I think. They're, they're genuinely very friendly, warm people. Although I must say, Moscow does seem to have a, a harsher outlook on life, um, if I can put it that way. You know, you go to other cities, go to Katrinburg or Krasnodar or St. Petersburg, and people there are generally much livelier and happier, and, and somehow the places have a, a bit more colour. Moscow seems to be a bit more edgy. It's quite 
sort of grey in its attitude. People, at first appearances anyway, are just a little bit harsher or a bit less friendly than you, you might hope for. But I'm sure it's only a facade. But eventually, if all's well, if they like the look of your face and there's no problems with your passport, then you'll eventually be uh, let off the aircraft. Your passengers can get off and you eventually can get off as well. And you go through and at some point later in the process, they'll hand you back your passport with a little white bit of paper in it, which you must not lose. If you lose that bit of paper, you are done for. You won't get into a hotel and they certainly won't let you back out again. So protect that little bit of paper. Top tip for all those people who are thinking about visiting the Soccer World Cup there next summer. Uh, plan your trip well in advance. Get your visa sorted. Get everything arranged because uh, if something takes a week here, it's going to take a month over there. So once you get out of the airport, then you're faced with, for me, the absolute worst bit about going to Russia. The rest of it's fine, but this is what I genuinely hate about having to, to visit Moscow at least. It's the traffic on the roads. My God, they can do a traffic jam like no one else in the world. Whew, and I've seen some traffic jams in my time, but um, Moscow loves a good traffic jam. Uh, of course, if it's winter and the weather is foul and snowing, and if there's been an accident or something, then the roads are just chocker. Moscow's surrounded by, uh, uh, I think, about two, maybe even three big ring roads, a bit like the M25 here uh, in the UK. But they are just jammed. I have spent no word of a lie before. In fact, several times I've spent four to five hours sat in traffic just to do a journey of uh, not so many miles into the centre of town for to get to the hotel. But of course, once you get to the hotel, once you're in town, then it's great. Um, Moscow's a lovely city. It's a huge city. Ten million people live there. It's a big city. It's very different to look at from London or Barcelona or Miami or somewhere else. You know, you can see the, a lot of history. You can see the evolution from the you know communist governments. Uh, lots of high-rise buildings. Very wide streets. It's very typical of, of Russian and Eastern European cities. It's very wide streets with uh, very wide pavements or sidewalks. Um, but beautiful. You know, go to the Kremlin and uh, the churches and things around there. It's gorgeous. The one thing I, I never got to do and I really regret uh, not doing is going to the Space Museum in Moscow. Uh, there's this lovely big statue that we drive past often on the way to the hotel. Great big plinth and at the top of it, looking very proud and, and strong, is a statue of uh, Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space. And they've got a great Space Museum there uh, and you can see all the fascinating um, things they've sent up into space. You know, Russia really for many, many years were the leaders in space exploration, in the space race. I mean, really, they won the space race. You know, the Americans got to the moon first, but all the other firsts, all of them were all Russia. First man in space, first spaceship in space, first satellite, first woman, first black person in space. Uh, I think it was a Cuban, a Russian Cuban. Um, what else? First animal, did I say that? they? If there was a first, they did it. And of course, still they're great leaders in in space technology. In fact, if you want to go to space right now, today, then Russia is the only country with the capability to launch astronauts into space with their Soyuz rockets. Since NASA discontinued the shuttle, uh, well, quite some years ago now, then the Russians are the only kids on the block able to do it. 
So maybe another day I'll get a chance to go back and, and visit the Space Museum. But, uh, wow, listen, I've been rambling for 20 minutes. I think that's enough about that. Um, so I'll, I'll miss Russia. I'm genuinely sad that I won't be going there again uh, for quite a while. So I'm going to finish this segment by, in my best Russian, saying, Prosaya Russia, tebez nova. Catch you all next time, folks. For your chance to win some fantastic prizes, all you have to do is answer these seven questions. What date was the first Boeing 747 rolled out of the Everett Assembly building? What year did the Airbus A300 make its maiden flight? What was the world's first airline to use an aircraft in revenue service? As of 2017, which airline has the world's largest fleet of commercial airliners? Which airline called itself the world's friendliest airline and painted a smile on the nose of its airplanes? Which two nationalised airline corporations and which two regional airlines were merged to form British Airways on March 31st, 1974? And what year was Ryanair founded? And what aircraft did they first fly? So for your chance to win these amazing prizes, send your answers into podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. That's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Best of luck. So that's almost it for this very special episode of the show. 2017 has been an incredible year for us here at PTUK Towers. And with the 200th literally just round the corner, 2018 is looking to be a great year too. So as we say goodbye to 2017, we're going to leave you with a few outtakes from the Christmas episode that we recorded last week. So from everyone here at the Plain Talking UK podcast, we'd like to wish you a happy and very prosperous 2018. Happy New Year, everyone. I think this is why they're planning to start the 200th at lunchtime so that they can get it going by (laughs) 7 o'clock in the evening. Mm -hmm. Very sensible. Podcast written by a passenger for anyone. Oh, Sony now. I want to hear that music. It's time for me to take my nap. (laughs) (laughs) How very rude. Are we ready to go? I think I think the show is so long to open the show. It's only got time to say bye, everyone. <laughs> yeah, bye, bye, everyone. That's it then for episode number ten hundred and fifty. Okay, <laughs> right. Okay, ladies and gents, I'm very sorry, but we are actually now able to do a show. <laughs> We're ready to go. We're only an hour late. Yes. Well, it's nice to uh, meet everybody. It's a sad it was a very pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it was great. And, uh, yeah, real nice evening, Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I hate you all. I hate every single one of you. <laughs> <laughs> you love us. Yeah, I do. I do. You like can you. All. Yeah, right. Okay, so um, is there anything we need to discuss That's before it. we start? We've all got the show notes. We've all read oh, the show notes. The, the what now? What are show notes we've, again? Yes. We've all, we have them. We've, we've all have read them. the show have notes apart from Matt. And... Have you got them, Masha? Myla. Myla, sorry. <laughs> Wrong one. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I've only actually read my own story. Oh, that's oh, okay. Well, no, that's, that's fine. fine. That's, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, Perfect. Yeah. That's, that's more than I've done. Yeah. <laughs> that is more than I've done. Oh, I know. Uh, uh, your camera is frozen. Your camera is frozen, Myla. Myla. You look like you're sleeping. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, well, wow. I... No, you, you beat us to it, Jeff. Can you just bring up the Skype callers a tiny little bit, please? Because they're oh, yeah. a little under us, which we don't want. So to speak. Indeed. Under was under over, and over was under done. Under, under, over, over. Roger, Roger. Victor, Victor. We've got Clarence, Clarence. Roger, Roger, give us a Victor. Obviously, right, class, please. Quiet, one moment. Uh, a brief uh, teacher is talking now, please. Uh, behave yourselves, everyone. Uh, now, obviously, just bear in mind that the nightmare that is Skype means that if too many people are talking all at once, that we can't hear everyone. Now, I know that's going to be very, very difficult to, uh, uh, especially with Captain Al, to sort of, you know, behave, obviously. Uh, but... <laughs> um, so please just try and be a little bit... Uh, uh, the only one I haven't heard for a little while, and that maybe because perhaps he's nodded off, is... Um, is uh, Rob still there? Rob Mark, are you still there? Oh. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. Okay, right. So, okay, all right. Calling Rob. So here we go. The last APG. This is not fully duplex. Is that correct, Captain Jeff? Is, is that what he's saying? Uh, I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, just Hello, a very quick question, guys, before we do start. Yes, of course. What's everyone got? We're running a. We're running a sweep. What's everyone got as their how long until we break Matt moment? Five minutes, seven minutes. Get your bets in. Get your bets in. I do have a question to start. I know we haven't started yet and everybody is desperate for to actually start. Before we move but, on. But yes. If we can, if we can take a little moment, oh. I can recharge. This is like the longest pre-show ever. Yes. Yeah. Right, I can everyone take their recharge moments. Also. Recharge. Okay. Has everyone done their wee-wees? Recharge and discharge <laughs> time. Hang on. I'm going to start. Uh-oh. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Sorry, you're going to have to zoom in there, Al. Sorry, Al. <laughs> Sorry, Al. Some magnification may be required, mate. We could <laughs> Is it really cold over there or something? Well, you know. Got it. I walked in at a really it. awkward time there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you certainly did, Al. Yeah. I think I might need this bottle. Actually, I, if I remember rightly, Brian, last Christmas when we done the show, uh, the mm -hmm. Christmas special, that was the show you spilt beer on your keyboard. <laughs> yes, that's why I have no beer with me now. Oh. You just need to get a waterproof keyboard. Surely would have been easier just to have gone without the keyboard as an option, wouldn't it? You know, stuck with the beer, no keyboard. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where Matt's gone. He's downstairs in the barn somewhere. <clears throat> Cue music. Oh, actually, we could cue some music. Let's play the dirty music. While Brian seductively eats <laughs> some fruit. That's not a euphemism, I don't think, is it? Oh, dear. Hey, if Rob could do it. Well, I'm finished. Oh, dear. <laughs> Just like oh, I have to go back over to. You guys can actually YouTube see it? You can see him on YouTube. Yeah, on YouTube, YouTube Myla. On YouTube. Oh, my YouTube must be like 10 minutes delayed or something because it's getting kept <laughs> now. Oh, God. Oh, blimey. <laughs> Sorry to hear that's that. Never, that's never good. Holy moly. Someone would be naked. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've had that discussion. Yeah, I'm just seeing Brian. Oh, yes. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I think we better start a show. We're, oh, only, we're exactly an hour late, so that's okay, so tradition. It's only fair. Tradition. It's only fair. Well, you know, I mean, APG are used to it, aren't yeah. they? So that's fine. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. We don't know what you're talking about. No, of How course not. rude. I'm, How very I'm very dare sorry. you. I'm very sorry. I'm dressed as Santa. I can say what I like. Anyway, here we go, then. Uh, no, you're restricted to one line. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there uh, we are. <laughs> I think we got well, away with it. Well, I would have said nailed it, but I don't think we quite did. <laughs> <laughs> about four hours of nailing. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's yeah, like I think stopping, we hit the nail a few times. Went stopping banging your head against the brick wall, isn't it? Indeed. indeed. <laughs> indeed. So, uh, guys, I, I, I don't know what to say. Thank you so very much for all taking <laughs> time out of your insanely busy lives to, to oh, share I it with us. I didn't even get a bloody mince pie. Did you not? I'm sorry. No. Oh, I, I got one. I got It was lovely. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, we saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I thought the catering was pretty, pretty rubbish, quite honestly. Right. Well, British Airways provided that. Nick, what do you expect? <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> you mean I had to go down? I had to go to the local Marks and Spencers and buy one. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Before you get on the plane. Great. Right. You see, that's great. Right. That's, that's the issue. When did your show start? Yeah, that was the rehearsal. Yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Carlos, sure about that? if you really tried hard, wouldn't the show have gone better? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, where's the mute button for, yeah, yeah, yeah. for Brian? How do you mute individual corners? Brian, exactly mute on this Skype thing. Button. I don't know how this works. Well, uh, sorry, Matt, that was, was an uh, easy softball. <laughs> sorry, uh, yeah. extra saucer of milk there for Brian. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> I, I, I especially like the uh, cameo appearance by whoever's um, phone was... <laughs> receiving lots and lots and lots of emails. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. There, somebody, somebody's emails. phone. Yeah, it was, it was somebody was receiving an alarming amount of emails. I, I've got a nasty feeling it might have been a certain Mr. Rob Mark. <laughs> Mr. Mark, somebody who's very popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, then it can't have been Rob. <laughs> hey, looking, but no one ever sends me messages. Uh, Rob, uh, Rob, Rob, we can't hear you. Where's Rob gone? He's there. Rob, no, oh, now Rob, and Cube. Rob. Hello. Rob. More calling Rob. Hello. More calling Rob. Speaking Come in, Rob. <laughs> okay, this is your moment. Okay, don't spoil it now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, Rob. So the... <laughs> he's got performance anxiety. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not helping. Uh, he's, oh, gone, yeah. he's gone. He's gone. I had yeah. to turn off my laser snow display because I think I've gone blind in my right <laughs> eye. <laughs> <laughs> Where you want to approach, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought I was going to have a fire at one point because the light that I brought in to get rid of the the prison effect actually overheated and started flickering. Oh. And then I, I saw the music coming out of it. I was a little yeah. concerned. Yeah, was, he's he's actually, Al looks as though he's in jail, doesn't he? He does look <laughs> like he's in prison. He actually look like Sorry he's about that. I'm back. I unplugged by mistake. Oh, hey. 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 There he is. Hey. I said, there we could see your lips moving, Rob, but nothing was coming out. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I was saying is that this brings me to voices in my head. No, all right. Ah, dot com. Oh, actually, hold on. Is, no, Myla, is it, are you an hour ahead of us? Is it midnight, you're... Uh, it could, yes. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, in a word. Yes. My yes. word. Indeed. Bless him, Marla. He doesn't get out of East Anglia very often. He doesn't realise <laughs> there's a whole world out Mute there. Mute Al. Mute Al. 
<laughs> I think we've killed Captain Nick. Captain Nick has, is on the floor, Captain ladies and gentlemen. On the floor. He right, is out up. for Thank the you. count. Thank you, Captain Nick. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, no, he really has gone. Uh oh. Uh oh. Nick, Nick's de de declaring a pan. Pan, pan, pan. <laughs> Yeah, for the 200th, I've just yeah. put myself a room. Oh, that's very good. good. Well, you've had Ooh. plenty of time, let's be honest. <laughs> I, I gather it's in the under the arches of Putney Bridge or something. Yes. Isn't Pretty that much, where yeah. it is? You, yeah, you do know that we're sharing, don't you, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> I've not mentioned that. You're in a oh, broom really? cupboard. Uh, okay. Well, I hope you yes. don't snore and fart, because I certainly do. <laughs> okay, right. Okay. And the competition the has begun. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, right. Yes. Uh, well, it, it is... £18 a day for car park. Parking. Yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> but uh, a yeah, special so discount good. for Audis. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right, right, too. Well, since I just lunch in order to do this, uh, it's now dinner time here in Chicago, and I am starving. <laughs> okay. My, yes. low, yeah. my low food light is on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and, yes. Uh, are you are you declaring yeah, a mayday, Rob? Declaring bingo, <laughs> yeah. yeah. bingo, bingo food. Yeah. Bingo food. Mayday. Mayday. <laughs> and, uh, he's Oh, you guys want to come back in again. Very nice Christmas. This was really a lot of fun. And uh, uh, Micah and Brian, uh, thank you so much for not telling me what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry. You, I'll you get might not have shown this. up. I'll get you. Yeah. Hey, you all have a nice Christmas. And Thank you, Rob. Rob. Take, Take care, Rob. Thanks so much for doing Bye, this. Rob. Cheers. Bye, Rob. I have Rob. to say, you get the hang of this podcast. Right. If you're sort of taking it up on a more permanent basis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, look at the time. I'm <laughs> back on that. Uh, anyway, I think we should all sing a Christmas song. Or not. Or not. Okay. Okay. Yes. All right. Not well, been received that well, is it? That went down so, like a lead yeah, balloon. Yeah, it did indeed. Okay. Look, guys, uh, thank you so very much from all of us here uh, in uh, all around the world. If you want a world. Christmas song, Josh will do you a Christmas song. Oh, go on, Josh, go on. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle away. Oh, what fun is to ride in one horse open sleigh. Hey, hey, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle away. Oh, what fun it is to ride in one horse and can sleigh. Hey, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle away. <laughs> there we go. Oh, thank you, Josh. Brilliant. That's an LP version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I prefer yeah. the one where yeah. Batman smells. Right, and Robin, and Robin flew away. Robin flew away. Yeah. I know, but I let, you you're know, going to get that one as well. Yeah, let, let's not let's not lose the innocence just yet, hey. Uh, so, uh, uh, look, guys, that was the innocence, innocence in Captain Al's house. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but you know, that's a perfect way to end the show. Thank you very much, Josh. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to everybody who participates and listens to uh, all of the podcast shows. I know all of us really, really appreciate it. It has been an insane year. For us uh, here at PT UK, certainly, and I'm sure it's been the same for everyone else as well. You listeners are literally the best people in the entire world, and nobody could ask for better listeners than we all are lucky enough to have as part of this wonderful oh. aviation community. So, uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much for making this so very work it, worth it every single week. Yeah, absolutely. Nice speech. That'll work. Cheers. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I gotta yeah. just say, you know, peace out, guys. Peace out. Thanks. Yes, uh, yeah. From all of us here, guys, it is time to say goodbye. Take care, Bye bye, everybody. Bye bye. Much love. Bye. 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 bye.